preaching. <laughs> There's a lot of good conversations to have in that during that time that need to be carried on after church. All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. We're going to learn about paying taxes and worshiping God. Let's just say that in, you know, the number, November elections coming up, all of a sudden you go to the poll and you're doing your part as a citizen and, and you look down there and there's a, a proposal, a proposition called Proposition Plunder Christians. And it's the government's new idea that what we can do now, if this passes, is just take from Christians whatever they have, whenever we want, to whatever degree, you know, really just reduce them to poverty in order to help the welfare of the whole. And since there are not really that many people who are really committed Christians, it probably won't be that big of a deal. Now, just saying that, how does that kind of make you feel? You kind of just like, what? Um, It... Probably makes you a little angry and probably would make you want to, in the very minimum, maybe gripe and complain. Uh, maybe get involved in politics or, you know, try to get a petition to veto it. And maybe you'd want to start a revolution. Well, the Bible is crystal clear how you should respond. But many Christians don't want to respond that way because uh, they don't really want to honor Christ in every area of their life. And the question is, why is this? Well, because for many, the government and money are their trust, are their hope. And so if the government is not doing what's right, or if somebody starts dipping into their pocket, they're they're messing with their God. And they get quite agitated. While they would never admit it, their actions and words declare they have a different Lord than Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 36, the author of Hebrews is speaking to the New Testament Christians who, of course, when they came to Christ, the Jews were rejected by the Jewish community. And because they were Christians and only believed in one God, they were rejected from by the Romans. So they're really outcasts at all angles. He says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated for you showed sympathy to the prisoners. That is Christians who were thrown into prison for being Christians and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and elastic one. You just let that sink in there. They come and say, we're taking your car. We've emptied out your bank account. We're taking your house. We're taking your clothes. We're taking everything. And you joyfully receive that. That is the Christian response. But Christians in America are so worldly minded because we have so much prosperity and we have so many things that sometimes we are so caught up with all of our things that we begin to think that those things actually define our life. They are really what we worship sometimes. They become our God. Some would sooner have their Bible taken away from them than their paycheck. 
You know, if you told some, listen, you're going to have to either part with your possessions or part with the right to preach the gospel, they'd say, well, I don't preach the gospel anyway, so I'll part with that. Well, our text this morning addresses these very same issues. In the hearts of the religious leaders are these very same issues. And Jesus goes after it in the most brilliant way, which upon a surface reading of the text is not apparent. The Jewish leaders at this time are angry at Jesus. Remember, it is Passover week, which is a pilgrim feast week, which means there's Jews from all over the place to come to worship in Jerusalem, specifically on the Temple Mount. Jesus has just ridden into town. They've declared him to be the Messiah. And now it's the next day. It's probably Tuesday. He's only got a couple more days before he dies. It's his passion week. And he has driven the merchants off the Temple Mount. Merchants that the Jewish leaders, who are the policemen of the Temple Mount, the Sanhedrin kind of received kickbacks from. So by driving them off... He was taking money out of the pockets of the religious leaders. This made them angry. Jesus is preaching the gospel, which means he's telling people that he's the Messiah. This makes them angry. Jesus is not submitted to their self-appointed counsel. This makes them angry. He has not asked permission to do the things he's doing, and he's preaching, and huge crowds are following, though he's not even approved rabbi. This makes them angry. Jesus' declaration that they're going to reject their own Messiah makes them hotter than hornets. They are furious. And that's where our text picks up from last time. Look at verse 19 of Luke 20 and follow along as I read. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. They feared the people for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. They questioned him saying, teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Or not. But he detected their trickery and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render the Caesar, the things that are Caesar and to God, the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people and being amazed at his answer. They became silent. From this text, I'm just going to ask you four questions to help you evaluate your attitudes, your actions towards Christ, towards money, towards the government, towards the truth, really towards everything you do. The first is, are you hostile to the truth? Look at verse 19. We've kind of already mentioned this. It's kind of, verse 19 is kind of a hinge between what comes before and after. So we're looking at it again, just from a little different angle. The scribes and chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against him. He just told the parable of the wicked vine growers, remember, who are 
appointed to take care of the vineyard. But when the servants come to collect the, the owner's money, they abuse them and abuse them and abuse them. The servants being representative of the prophets. And then finally, the owner, which of course represents the father, sends his son, which represents Jesus. And they say, hey, it's the heir. Let's kill him because they don't want to give up possession of the vineyard. So that's what's happening. The owner's son has showed up to the vineyard. And now they, in self-fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, are plotting to do away with him. They want Jesus dead. But one of their ungodly character traits was working in Jesus' favor because they feared the people. If you look back at Luke chapter 19, verse 48, it says they were hanging on his every word. Jesus was such an amazing teacher that the, the crowds, the multitudes that were, were just choking the temple mount were just amazed at what he was saying. And they knew that from the parable, they were the wicked, murderous vine growers. They were the ones whose fathers persecuted the prophets and John the Baptist and now Jesus himself. They were the ones who had forgotten that Israel was God's and that they were merely caretakers until God would send his son to take over. They understood themselves to be the builders who rejected the chief cornerstone, who was Jesus. And they realized that they had stumbled over the stumbling stone. And that Jesus being that stumbling stone would in judgment crush them and scatter them into dust. They understood these things. Thus in the plan of God, all of these things were used by God to fuel their hatred for Christ so that they would be provoked to murder him. And I just need to ask here, are you hostile to the truth? You know, you probably think to yourself, well, Jack, I'm not really a hostile person. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty gentle. I've ever struck anybody. I'm a nice person. And and yet, there are a lot of people who don't see themselves as hostile who are. Are there truths, let me ask you, are there truths that you know about in God's word that you know you should be doing, but you don't want to do them? If that's true... You're hostile to the truth. And if some kind, loving soul were to come up to you and say, Brother, sister, I've been noticing that you haven't been doing this or that. And the scriptures say instantly there is an anger inside of you. Who are you to tell me I need to read my Bible? Who are you to tell me I must share my faith? Who are you to tell me I must serve and get involved? Who are you to tell me I must live like a Christian? And if someone reminds you that, well, these are the things that Christians do. And if you don't want to do that, you, you, you might not be a Christian. And now that really infuriates you. You have committed yourself to not follow Christ, but you know you're a Christian and you're on your way to heaven. And they, they quote to you, you know, if you love Christ, you will keep his commandments. And, and by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. And you think, well, who are you to judge me? And they make, these statements make you furious inside. And you think, I'm staying away from that person because they're a legalist. But you are blind to the fact that they are just the messenger of God for your good. And that the real problem is you don't want to hear the truth 
because they're just telling you the truth. The king has sent them to you to do you good, and you are hostile to that truth. Secondly, do you hate Christ? You may be thinking, well, you know what? There are some things, but I don't think I hate Christ. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I love him. You know what? You can be a Christian. You can love Christ and still show some hatred towards him. And we all do at times, really, whenever we sin. Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. And so really to say, Lord, I know you're my Lord, but not in this instance, not in this area, not in this sphere. I'm going to be my own Lord. That act is really an act of rebellion. What's interesting about verse 20, if you look there, it says, so they watched him. Who are the they there? Well, the parallel texts in Mark and Matthew tell us it was the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees were the fanatic keepers of the, the Old Testament. They memorized the scripture and they did everything exactly right. I think we know about them. The Herodians a little bit more obscure. They were the political religious people. They sided with the Sadducees and encouraged the Jews to comply with Rome and and submit to Rome and let some of the Roman practices be integrated with their Judaism. And though the Pharisees, who were lovers of the Old Testament law, hated the Herodians, in this instance, they combined efforts to try and trap Jesus. What we're going to find out as we go through this text is that all these groups broke up and then they all came after Jesus in their own little groups to try and trap him. This was the first attempt. And so they watched him. It's an active participle. And uh, the word is really to watch so as to capture. It's kind of like uh, lions lying in the grass, staring at a wounded wildebeest, waiting to pounce upon him. Malice was in their heart. And look at the first part of verse 20 again. And they sent spies who pretended to be righteous. Why did they pretend? Because they weren't righteous. They were unrighteous. They actually had murderous hearts, murderous intentions, but they came to speak to Jesus and to pretend to be something they were not. The word pretend means just that. It means to impersonate, to play the part, to give the impression that you have certain purposes and motivations which you do not have. It's to be the hypocrite. And look at the middle of verse 20 where we read that they pretended to be righteous, something they were not, in order that they might catch him in a statement. They're, they're trying to capture him. They're trying to ensnare him. And why did they want to do this? So they could deliver him, the text says, to the rule that is probably to the Jewish council who would then hand him over to the end of the verse and the authority of the governor who at that time was Pilate. So they're looking for a way to capture him so they can then incarcerate him, condemn him in the Jewish council, and then having condemned him in the Jewish council, take him to Pilate, who then could sentence him to death because the Jews couldn't do that under Roman rule. And all this shows their hatred for Christ, but I ask all of us, do we show hatred towards Christ? Because that is really, I think, the principle here that we need to learn to avoid. Pretending to be somebody you're not in order to take advantage of somebody else is not loving them and is not loving God or Christ. 
the scriptures refer to unbelievers as those who hate God. In Deuteronomy 5, 9, it, it, it describes them that way. In Romans 5, 10, it describes them as enemies of God. In Romans 8, 7, as hostile to God. And James 4, 4 says friendship with the world is hostility towards God. I mean, think about that. You know, you don't have to be actively with a club and screaming. You just have to come to church, know the truth, and then not do it to be hostile to Christ. Jesus said in Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Notice you can't show love to God and not serve him because he says that's an act of hatred. First John four twenty says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Notice that if you don't love your brother, it's an act of hatred towards God. Who tells you to love your brother? We often think of hatred in much more violent terms, but even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, but he hates people and he hates God. I've seen both men and women pretend to be somebody they were not in order to marry somebody. Some person that they thought would make them happy. I've seen people pretend to be righteous that they might get attention or fame or accolades or material gain, or physical pleasure. Jude speaks of them. Turn to the book of Jude. It's right before the book of Revelation. It's just a one-pager. The little tiny book of Jude. It doesn't matter what chapter you turn to. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 of Jude. He's speaking here of these people who pretend to be one thing, but in their hearts have quite another thing. He says, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, carrying for themselves clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. I mean, someone looks like a calm harbor of refuge, but what they really are is like jagged coral waiting to sink your ship. They, they, people feast with you and without fear and they say all sorts of gracious things and you think this person is great and they're plotting to take advantage of you. They're like clouds, which when you look at them, you think, oh, they are going to be such a blessing, but no rain falls. They are like autumn trees and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to go and see some fruit here because it's autumn and they should be laden in fruit. And when you get close, you discover they're not only dead, but doubly dead like an uprooted tree. They're like wild waves in a storm which batter your boat back and forth only to cast up their own shame on the on the shore like dirty foam. They are like wandering stars you can't navigate by because they're always moving. And such people, because of their actions, he says, make reservations. And it's not in a restaurant. It's in the black darkness. Thomas Watson speaks of them saying, Satan is their captain and hell is the port they are bound for. And though they look very religious on the outside, they hate Christ. And Jude sums up in verse 16, these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. There they are, 
There they are around God's people. But they're only caring for themselves, what they can get, what they want, their way, their advantage, their income. And they sneak into the church and they corrupt other people. And I would say that if you look at your life and that's what you see, a hatred for Christ and a hatred for the truth, you need to abandon ship because you're sailing down rather than up. You need to give your life to Christ, repent of your sins, believe that Jesus died for you, trust in him as your savior and cancel your reservations to black darkness. The Sanhedrin, the whole Jewish religious council was religious experts in scripture and doctrine, constantly serving the Lord, but most of them hated Christ. A lesson to learn. Third, are you paying your taxes? Now, this one here, we should probably just like take moments to pray. Earlier, I asked, are you hostile to the truth? And you probably said, no. I said, you need to pay your taxes. What? The truth is, God wants you to pay your taxes. God does. Many are very passionate about taxes. I mean, they don't have a problem with false teachers, people going to hell, but you dip into their pockets and they fly into a rage. And I don't know how else to say it here, but uh, to pay your taxes is to show love to Christ. To pay your taxes is to do the will of God. To pay taxes is to be godly, is to be righteous, is to be holy in God's sight. It's the will of God for you. Think about that when it comes tax time and there's all these people who pretend to be lovers of God who says, pay your taxes, and they're all grumbling. What does that tell the world? I don't want to submit to God. I don't want to show love to Christ. I don't want to do that. It's not a good witness. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 13. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is... No authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. And just stop here and just think about this. Paul is writing when Rome, a pagan, God-hating government is in control. They, they killed their babies. They were entrenched in immorality and paganism and worshiping all these Greek pantheon. Submit to them, for there is no authority except that which is from God. You read in, in Isaiah chapter 40 that, that God is the one who establishes governments. God is the one who raises them up. God is the one who blows them and then they are like chaff and they are gone. Read, you know, read Daniel chapter 4 and the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. That God is sovereign. He rules over the affairs of mankind and he bestows authority on whomever he wishes. So who's ever in authority, it's God's will. And we may not understand how that wicked person could be God's will, but God is using that person. And he says, goes on to say, therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause to fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good. And you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. 
But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister for God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but for conscience sake. For because of this, you will also pay taxes. For the rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to who to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. That is the will of God. And God is speaking to all of us saying, we need to not be a bad witness. We need to pay our taxes. John Calvin notes, quote, Christ declares that it is no violation of the authority of God or any injury done in his service, if in respect of outward government, the Jews obey the Romans. He appears also to glance at their hypocrisy because while they carelessly permitted the service of God to be corrupted in many respects and even wickedly deprived God of his authority, they displayed such ardent zeal about a matter of no importance, end quote. That matter being keeping their money. Look at verse 21. They question him saying, teacher, and here comes, you know, the butter slathered on the noose they hope to hang him with. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you are not partial to any. They got that right. But teach the way of God in truth. Everything they said was absolutely true. It's just they didn't believe it. And we discussed in the previous context that they knew about the miraculous events of John the Baptist's birth. They knew about the miraculous events of Jesus' birth. They knew about Jesus' ministry and how he had been healing people all over the country and talking to them and dialoguing with them for three years. They knew about the triumphal entry. They knew that they declared him to be, be the son of David, the Messiah. They knew he drove out the merchants. They knew that he was claiming to be the Christ. And we know they knew these things because remember Nicodemus, when he came to Jesus at night, he was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. And he said, we know that you are from God, speaking of the whole. So when the Pharisees send their spies to Jesus saying, we know you speak the truth correctly, they're after him. They're after him. J.C. Ryle comments, these words sounded fine. An unsuspecting bystander would have said, these are sincere inquirers after the truth. But all was hollow and unreal. It was the wolf putting on sheep's clothing in a vain attempt to deceive the shepherd, end quote. They were flattering Jesus. Proverbs 26, 28 says, flattering lips work ruin. Proverbs 29, 5 says, a man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. Charles Spurgeon warns, always beware of people who flatter you. And especially when they tell you that they do not flatter you. And that they know you cannot endure flattery, for you are then being most fulsomely flattered. So be on your guard against the tongue of the flatterer, end quote. They told the truth in their flattery, but now comes the net. Look at verse 22. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And you just need to soak this in. They've got a smirk on their face when they're saying this. Because this is a very calculated, a very precise a very devious question. Jesus is standing in the midst of a great multitude. 
And what you need to understand is the Jews hated Roman oppression. They hated paying taxes. They hated that the tax collectors would come and take more taxes than they needed to take and plunder them. That their hard-earned money was going to Romans who would use it for pagan practices. According to Josephus in his Antiquities in 6 AD, a man named Judas of Galilee or the Galilee, together with a Pharisee named Sadduk, declared that paying taxes to Rome was treasonous to the one true God. Well, this little statement in 6 AD, now this is, you know, some 25 years previous, so stuck in the minds of the Jews that they, they just loved it. It was like their motto. It consumed their thought. Paying taxes was sacrilege to God. And of course, anybody who's a lover of money, which the Pharisees were and the Jewish leaders were, anybody who's a lover of money loves a slogan like that. Josephus says that these words so stuck in the minds of the Jews that it was one of the main reasons they rebelled against Rome in 70 AD, which led to Titus destroying the city and the temple. Josephus writes, quote, men received what they said with pleasure. And this bold attempt proceeded to a great height. All sorts of misfortunes also sprang for these men. And the nation was infected with this doctrine to an incredible degree. One violent war came upon us after another. And we lost our friends who used to alleviate our pains. And there were also very great robberies and murders of our principled men. This was done in pretense indeed for the public welfare. But in reality for the hopes of gain to themselves. Whence arose seditions and from them murders of men. A famine also came upon us, reduced us to the last degree of despair, as also did the taking and demolishing of cities. Nay, the sedition was at last increased so high that the very temple of God was burnt down by the enemy's fire, end quote. Josephus says, you know why the temple was primarily burnt down and Jerusalem was raised to the ground? Because they hung on to that slogan that they shouldn't pay taxes. And these are all the people now who are crowded around Jesus. And so when the religious leaders ask Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? They just know this is it. We've got him. Because the only thing he can say is yes or no. And if he says yes, all the people will hate him. And that will be the end of his popularity. If he says no, then we'll arrest him and turn him over to Rome and they'll execute him. Aha! They loved it. They loved it. But look at verse 23. He detected their trickery and said to them, show me a denarius. The word trickery is used of Satan's crafty deception of Eve in 2 Corinthians eleven three, and deceitful scheming is how it's translated in Ephesians 4, 4. They were Satan's children and they were acting like it. Now picture in your mind here what's going on. There's all these people around Jesus' crowd around. There's an open area in front of them. And there's all the Jewish leaders all standing there stroking their beards. They've got their robes and their tassels and all their finery. Because after all, it is the Passover week and they're trying to make an extra show. And Jesus says, show me a denarius. And they look at each other and one man reaches under his cloak and undoes his purse and opens it up and pulls out a silver denarius. And he turns it back and forth and they're looking at each other like he's not getting out of this one. We've got him. But while the multitudes look on, Jesus says, according to the text, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they all know. But the man looks at it and they all kind of look at it like they don't know. And well, Caesar's Caesar's. 
That's what they respond, the text says. Not he responded, but they responded in one accord. And that was true. The denarius had Caesar's image on it, but that's not all. This, the, the, the denarius also said in words, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And on the back was a picture of his mother, Livia, portrayed as the goddess of peace with the inscription, high priest. Do you see the irony here? The Jews don't want to give up their blasphemous coins. And at that time, a ruler's rule was said to extend as far as the coinage he had was accepted. By wanting to keep their denarii, what was happening is they were declaring Caesar to be their Lord. And that they would rather keep a coin which declared Caesar to be son of God and his mother, the high priest, than to accept the true son of God and high priest. It's radical. It's so radical. And that, that's what they said. And we know that that's how they felt about it because later on when Jesus being tried in John 19 verse 15, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. They're busted. They're busted in front of all the people. The truth is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the son of God. And Jesus is the high priest, not Caesar. And everyone waits to see how Jesus is going to answer. And so he says, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The denarius was minted in Rome. The denarius had Caesar's image on it. It had Caesar's blasphemous claims on it. So if he wants it, give it back. Since you have declared him to be Lord by submitting to his rule and using his coinage. This is a brilliant stroke by Jesus, who probably now has the smirk on his face. And they're probably looking like, "Uh oh, I'm sure the man holding it up probably tucked it back in his purse and put it away. You know, if you look on our dollar bill, it says Federal Reserve note. Well, there's no we're near enough in reserve to cover it. It says Washington, D.C. It says Bank of San Francisco. It says United States on it. But unless your name is George Washington or you're the treasurer or secretary treasurer, your name is not on your dollar bill. I know some of you are going to pull your bundle. I'm writing it on there right now. (laughs) It's the government's money. It's provided to you by the government so that you can buy and sell. Your name's not on the money because it's something given to you to ease trade. And Jesus is teaching us that when the government wants their money back in taxes, we need to obey God and give it to them. We are not to put our hope in money. We use it wisely. I mean, why is it money is important? We need it to live by. We need it to buy things and take care of ourselves and clothes and food and things like that. But we never fall in love with it. We never trust in it. And you know what God's word says? Do not fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches for surely 
It will sprout wings as an eagle. It will fly away and be gone. And though Jesus supported paying taxes, amazingly, if you look over at Luke 23, look at Luke chapter 23, a couple chapters over, verse 2. Notice what they said at his trial right before his crucifixion. Luke 23, verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Notice, they totally twisted what he said and lied, but they got it right. He did claim to be Christ, a king. They totally lied about it. And so we need to look at our life and say, can we pay taxes in such a way that unbelievers can see our good deeds and glorify God who is in heaven? That's what God wants from us. Fourth and finally, Are you living for the glory of God? Look at the end of verse 25. The crowd is still listening. The Jewish leaders now are on the defense. Jesus having just declared that they should render to Caesar what is his. And Jesus concludes, and to God, the things that are God's. Now, let me ask you this. What in God's creation bears his image? We do. People. Jesus is saying, what I want you to do is give to the pagan Caesar his coin with his image and his blasphemies on it. And I want you to give to God yourself. I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. There are so many texts that could be alluded to here. You know, what does God want from us anyways? I like Psalm 15. It gives us 11 or 12 ways. Oh, Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks with integrity. That's what God wants from you. And works righteousness. That's what God wants from you. And speaks truth in his heart. That's what God wants from you. He does not slander with his tongue. That's what God wants for you. Nor does evil to his neighbor. That's what God wants. Nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised. But who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He, got, he does not put on... He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. That's what I'll tell what God wants. You want a shorter version? You can have Micah 6 eight. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love righteousness, and to walk humbly with your God. Or you could do it as Romans 12.1. All you need to do is just offer your whole life, your whole body... As a holy, acceptable, living sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do you see what Jesus is driving at? Listen, God doesn't want you to be fighting for your money. If you're going to be agitated about something, get agitated about your not worshiping God. There's something to be agitated about. Not having to pay taxes. The Bible Exposition Commentary notes, quote, It is unfortunate that some Christians have the mistaken idea that the more obnoxious they are as citizens, the more they please God and witness for Christ. We must never violate our conscience, but we should seek to be peacemakers and not troublemakers. Daniel is an example for us to follow, end quote. Now look at verse 26. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed... At his answers, they became silent. I mean, what could they say? They, they were the hunters and now they're the prey. 
They were, they thought they had Jesus just cornered beyond escape. And now they've been cornered beyond escape. They thought that they could at this final time condemn him and get rid of him because they wanted to murder the owner of the vineyard's son. Now, you know what? I wish I could have been there. I just, you know, I know God is all powerful. I'm going to ask him when I get to heaven if he could just send me back into time so I could be an uh, invisible observer to these events. So you can just see on people's faces. Wouldn't that be great? When Jesus says these things and to just see the people kind of like, whoa, didn't expect that one coming. And, you know, the guy with the coin tucking it back in his pocket real quick. And people looking at the ground in, in, in shame because they know that they're more agitated about keeping their money than they are at honoring God. They're standing on the temple mount, holy ground. And they're trying to have a political insurrection against Rome rather than a positive movement of worship and honor of the living God. And when we step back from the tax, you know, what do we see? We see very religious people, people who really know the scriptures, who are experts in doctrine, who are fanatics at obeying every little jot and tittle, who don't know God. And it, it, there's something to be concerned about here. Because just as it happened there, it happens in the church. You can be religious. You can know the scriptures. You can know doctrine. You can even go through the painstaking procedures of outward Christianity. But what's in your heart? What's in your heart? Do you hate the truth? Do you hate Christ who gave you the truth? Do you submit to the government and joyfully pay your taxes? Because you want to honor God and be a witness for Christ? And do you glorify God with your life, rendering to God your whole being? That's what this text teaches us. And if you're sitting out there and you're thinking, that, that's not me. That is not me. We're going to pray right now. You need to give your life to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as sinners in need of grace. And Father, for those here who don't know you, for those here who have never repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, his person, his death on the cross, his resurrection, I pray that you would right now just cause them to call out to you for salvation, not in peer pressure, not in mere fear, but Father, in love for the free gift of salvation you are now extending to them, that they would call out to you and declare that they are sinners, that they need salvation, that they need Christ, that they need your grace to transform them, to cause them to be born again so that they can live for you. For those of us who do know you, Lord, please forgive us when we show hatred to your truth and hatred to Christ, when we have grumbled about taxes, grumbled about submitting to the governing authorities. Father, we all do it. May we repent of that and may we joyfully submit so that people can look at our lives and so we can act like those in Hebrews who even joyfully rejoiced in the seizure of all their property 
May you give us the grace to respond that way if it comes to that. And if not, may we rely on you to help us respond in such a way that we can show love to you even in those things that the world hates. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.